Hello and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we talk about the technology of the future and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. Every day, people all over the world are faced with the same question. What am I going to eat? Whisk has created a platform that helps inspire consumers by introducing them to new publishers and recipes, and it streamlines the process of shopping for the food they need to create those meals. Today, I'm talking to Nick Holzer, CEO of Whisk, about how his company is changing the way people get inspired around the food they eat every day. So today we're here with Nick Holzer, who's the founder of Whisk and a new part of the Samsung Next product organization. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So to start, maybe tell us a little bit about what is Whisk. Whisk is a platform that connects a user's inspiration for food through to the meal on the table. So we know that people spend hours looking at recipe sites, being inspired with what they want to eat, but there's a lot of tedious manual tasks between that and actually having a meal on the table and what that and we can see that in some of the data people are cooking seven to nine recipes on repeat and they're not um, new things that they've been inspired by so that's kind of the fundamental problem we're trying to help users with users can create a shopping list from what they want to from their inspiration from their recipes they can save recipes into a recipe box and they can purchase them from the grocery retailers that we have integrated so let's say you're a consumer and you are looking for a, you know, new meal idea and you come across Whisk, what do you do next or what's the next part of the consumer journey? Yeah, so take a, a user, they have found a recipe on a recipe site, they click save, save it into their recipe box. I have many recipes in my recipe box that I've saved from all over the web. I might add my own recipe from a physical cookbook that I have in my kitchen or it might even be recipes that I've made up or I've received from my family, which I also save into this recipe box. And then I might go to a site to search for, so someone's coming around at the weekend, um, I want to cook a great dish, I go to a recipe site, find that recipe, add it to a shopping list, and then go, you know what, actually I want to add some other recipes, things that I, what else do I want to cook in the next week? And you go to your recipe box, you see all the things you've saved over the preceding months or years, um, you figure out that a few of them actually have got deals in store. There is a good time to cook them, add them to my shopping list, take that list into store. Um, if I don't choose to buy it online, the shopping list is organized into aisles. Um, so it makes it easy for me to tick off as I walk through that store. So I don't have to kind of go back and forth and zigzag like I used to do. And, um, I get home. I've got simple, straightforward access to all the recipes I've just bought so I don't have to go and research for them on the web. I can start the cooking process and the resulting recipes and the resulting meals and the time it's taking me is significantly better than it would have been without Whisk. Where does this recipe box live? Is it on whisk.com? Is it on an app? The recipe box lives wherever I've signed in with Whisk or an authenticating account. So that recipe box lives on every publisher site that we have integrated. It lives on, on fridges, which we have integrated, so fridges with screens on them. It lives on an app, a web app at my.wist.com. It basically lives, uh, well, it also lives on some health companies' sites that we have, we power. Anywhere where the Whisk food identity is used, you can access that, pull down that the list of saved recipes. So we're not that precious about where you're accessing it. We basically want to make it easy for you. You access it wherever you want to be accessing your favorite recipes. You have a consumer-facing app. 
But then what's happening sort of behind the scenes to actually enable that? We have integrations on loads of different recipe sites. We've basically taken the approach of we definitely don't want to be in the inspiration space. So we don't want to be a recipe publisher. There's thousands of people doing that really, really well already. So the bit that we want to do is help people take that inspiration through to the meal and table. So we integrate with other people. So we have integrations on thousands of third-party recipe sites. So we're on about um, two, 2 million recipes. Um, those recipes get about half a billion monthly impressions. And it's kind of where all of our technology sits across all these different sites. So you just click from that. They then, they then open up a whisk shopping list from that kind of uh, initial inspiration piece. And we do have a B2C app as well. So people can go and then view that recipe um, later in, in our application. Um, but often they'll also get back to the publisher where they or any of the publishers we have in our network. The platform's also kind of a, a universal shopping list. So you can go from one publisher to the next and to a different platform, a different surface, and it'll always your shopping basically follows you around. So you, you can add from anywhere into one place because we also realize most people won't want to shop just from one single publisher. So because we are trying to connect such a diverse set of recipe publishers and different formats of recipes, so it's not just digital recipes, it's also printed books and long-term TV shows and all sorts of different things we want to connect wherever people get inspired, essentially. The challenge, technically, is to understand all of that content. So different publishers have got different ways of writing their content. They structure it differently on the page. They use very different types of ingredients, even. So the, the technology behind the platform, essentially, is mapping all of that content into a our universal language, um, which we have this ontology, which we call our food genome. So we use natural language processing to basically map all this content onto this food genome. And that's kind of the, the foundation of how the whole platform works. And when you talk about the food genome, what does that actually mean? Like, what's the data that you're collecting and what can you do with that? We have this ontology of all the different products that exist in the world of food. On each of those items, we have nutrition, we have perishability, so how long does it last if you put it in the fridge, freezer, or pantry? We have where you can buy it from, so we map all the grocery store items from the different grocery retailers around the world onto this ontology, so we know what the price is, we know what the availability is. We know information around categories it fits into, flavor, how it tastes. So essentially what we, we understand from every recipe, when we map it onto the food genome, we suddenly understand this whole bunch of additional metadata around what is the nutrition of this whole recipe because we know the, we know the amounts of each ingredient and we know what the ingredients are in the food genome. We know what the price of the recipe is. We can start to infer a whole bunch of tags, nutrition-based tags, but also health-based tags, but also cuisines and uh, how long it's going to take and a whole bunch of different things. So... That ontology, we're kind of building up year on, on, on year. We've been building that ontology for about eight years now. English is the global language we're using, um, but we're also mapping on eight other languages today uh, with plans to expand that. So we can do exactly the same thing in German, in Korean, in Italian, French, uh, which basically means the unit that we have to kind of build technology-wise to go into a new language is just a natural language processing, so we can map it onto this food genome. And once we have the food genome, then everything else kind of comes for free. You can basically reason and connect all this content that people are looking at. And that's kind of the background of it, but you know, from a user perspective, what we want to deliver is not... Uh, users don't know any of that exists, right? It just needs to be a seamless experience, any recipe... And I want to go and take it, and I get the same seamless experience that takes me through to the, to the kitchen. Okay. Um, you mentioned publishers. You mentioned retailers. Uh, what other partners do you have, or integrations do you have along the way? Yeah. So it's it's kind of a it works as a marketplace. So very broadly, there are five groups: so publishers, retailers, CPG brands, IoT companies, and health companies. 
the reason we talk about it as a marketplace is, so we integrate, you know, I mentioned these 2 million recipes with about 11, 12 retailers. Some of those retailers are in multiple countries um, in our platform. So we operate in the US as our biggest market. And we have Germany, UK, Australia, and a few other markets that we have. We have integrations with retailers. So we essentially, when a publisher integrates us on their site, they're integrating us, sure, because we have a good shopping list and it works well, but also because we have all these, and actually very importantly, because we have all these integrations with retailers. Um, so they all benefit, they do one integration into WISC, put the shopping list on their site, and then they are automatically connected in all the different markets we're in to all the retailers we have, which means a user can go, I want to cook this recipe, click it, it'll find me the right products from the retailer, I can fill my basket at the retailer and, and buy it. So, and then it works the other way around too. So from a retailer perspective, the reason they want to go and integrate with WISC is because we have that scale of publishers. Um, so they can integrate once into WISC and they'll appear on all these different publisher sites. And then the rest of it kind of works very much the, in, the, in the same way. Um, so the same thing works for CPG brands. They want to be able to also connect their different content types they have, which might be anything from recipes on their site to ads or social media posts and all sorts of things like that. IoT companies want to essentially have the full um, breadth of items, so helping users get all the way from recipes to you know connecting to the digital appliances in their kitchen so they can cook the recipe properly. And then health companies they have you know nutrition and what what you eat is a huge influencer on how healthy you are. And there are a lot of problems because of um, people's lack of information around what they're eating. Um, so they essentially use us um, a lot around from the data, from that kind of food, food genome side of things, of understanding what is the nutrition of every recipe and what should I show users and what kind of recommendations for recipes should I use. So we kind of have two sides of the business. We have this user-facing food identity, which is where a user can save their shopping list, their recipe box, their preferences, and they can kind of take it around the web with them. And then we have this business B2B API side, which is the platform essentially helps businesses build their own smart food experiences. So there's a lot in that. I'm kind of wondering, when you talk about marketplace like that and of that scale, it's one thing when you have, you know, however many millions of recipes on your platform, and then you can go and say to a retailer, we have this critical mass of content that we can match up against the products that you can sell. On the flip side... You know, you can say to the publishers now, this is a way to help monetize the content that you already have. But when you got started, I imagine that was a big problem. So how did you get publishers on board? How did you get retailers on board? How did you solve that chicken and egg problem? It's a great question. And actually, it took us a while. Um, so, you know, we, we started in 2012. It took us probably a year to get the first publisher and get the first retailer of of size. So we, we started off with small blogs. And then we eventually got foodnetwork.co.uk, the UK uh, version of Food Network, to agree. And that was a long sales process, maybe you know, six months. The traffic was you know, small compared to what we're working with today, but for us at the time, it was huge. And then we had one retailer, and then slowly over the years, it built up. And then about two years ago, we were like, okay, we have enough scale in the UK now. Let's scale around the world. And started working in the US and in Germany and in other countries. And what we found actually also, there was an acceleration of the whole grocery market at that time. So there's a lot more interest for it. But we had kind of established ourselves as the market leader in doing this and had that kind of minimum viable marketplace um, in place. That said, the marketplace does kind of almost operate 
on a regional basis. So, you know, UK publishers care about UK retailers and US publishers care about US retailers. Um, so in a lot of the markets, we need to find a, we need to integrate one of the sides first and then, uh, and, and, and have someone who's taken kind of a leap of faith. That's become significantly easier in the last two, three, four years. Um, as we have scale, as we've kind of got models that we've proven out, we can show them the data of how it works in other sites. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely, definitely become easier. And you can see that in the scale as well. So, you know, I mentioned we have half a billion recipe impressions. You know, we started off with maybe a million recipe impressions. So a fraction of what we have today. And the, the line to where we are today is definitely kind of, if you look at the graph, is hockey stick shaped. It's not, um, it's not kind of slow and incremental. Got it. When you think about publishers, a lot of them are very brand sensitive. They don't necessarily want to be aggregated or seen as piled in with a a whole bunch of other uh, recipes or brands. How do you get them over those concerns? For a publisher, they get two things. They get, firstly, they get the functionality of the shopping list. And we spent, uh, and recipe box, and we we spent a lot of time perfecting that. So they get some advanced functionality that takes them through to grocery retailers, which would take significant technical resources to try and build themselves. As part of that, having that functionality on their site allows them to monetize the rest of their site more effectively because some of the big advertisers want, you know, the fact that a user can go to purchase um, is valuable for them. And then the second thing they get is the fact that we monetize that for them. So retailers pay us um, for a percentage of the transaction and advertisers advertise within the solution um, on the publisher site. So we have some space, some real estate on the publisher site and we allow those ads to follow the consumer along the path to purchase all the way into store. Now I'm calling them ads because it's the simplest way to, to describe them, but actually they're much more, they're very contextual and um, they're more like sponsored products. So something you might recognize on, you know, Google shopping. Uh, if you do a Google search for a product, you'll see a bunch of products pop up first it's a little bit like that but actually really we try and make them really um relevant to the user and helpful um so you know if it's about a sugary drink company advertising trying to push sugary drinks on to every single customer that might want it we try and disincentivize that and actually try and um, incentivize people who want to show users products introduce people to products that are actually valuable to their life and help that meal occasion or help the user and so essentially what we're bringing to the publisher is a new type of ad or a new type of monetization, incremental revenue, which is also very aligned with what some of the big CPG brands and advertisers actually are looking to buy. They're looking to buy native ads, shopper ads, shopper marketing is kind of digital shopper marketing is a whole new field. And as you see people you know, in grocery stores, the kind of end of aisle space used to be the valuable space for a brand to be on. That's now moving online. And in that online world, what does that look like? Um, I think we're part of that. Can you give me an example? In in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if you're adding something to your shopping yep. list, the consumer probably doesn't care what brand of butter or what yep. brand of product gets added. Yep. But since it's in context, you can suggest someone that you partner with, right? Sure, yeah. So take an example of a... Uh, a recipe, let's say you're looking at a spaghetti recipe, like a spaghetti bolognese recipe, and there's a brand uh, that makes chorizo. What you can say to someone is, hey, did you know that if you, you you can actually add a whole new taste side to this recipe by adding chorizo into the recipe? So it's actually it's a helpful suggestion, but it, it's, it's paid for. 
Another example would be making things healthier. So, hey, this recipe requires full fat, cream. You can actually use this substitute, which doesn't change the recipe too much, and it makes it healthier for you. There are loads of examples like that. You know, cooking utensils is another one. Um, You might need this product to cook this recipe. Some of the recipes are pretty complex and require new equipment. Um, So we have like uh, about 15 different types of ads, categories of ads that could be created. Another popular one from retailers is price. So, you know, showing their the best offers or deals that they have for a recipe. So you're looking at a recipe, it's got beef, cheese, and onion in it. And retailer can say, hey, we actually have a weekly deal on beef. It's half price where we're at. And obviously, you know, that's actually, that's, re- that's useful for a user. And we actually get great user feedback from those kind of promotions. But it's also, it is paid for and it does help the, the retailer. Um, so that's kind of, there is ways of, of monetizing this experience for publishers the the reason why you know you, you could ask why doesn't whisk need to exist in that why can't the publishers do that directly right and the reason is it's it's all, it's all around scale so we aggregate all these different publishers in, in our network essentially we don't show them next to each other we don't you know move publishers or users from one site to another or anything like that but the reason why we exist in that is for an advertiser they can say i only want to, i my product is beef i've got beef half price right now i want to show it on every beef recipe now if they were to go and try and broke those relationships with every single publisher a they would the opportunity per publisher would be quite small because they're really targeting a minute set there and b it would actually be quite a lot of work to try and do that and from both sides it wouldn't really happen so that's kind of where we see actually by aggregating all these publisher or all this user intent essentially into one place we can deliver ads that are suddenly much more useful to users because they are targeted to the occasion. Um, and actually, we can also offer a lot more value back to the advertiser, to the person paying for it, and because of that exact same thing, so we can actually create revenue that's uh, higher than a standard run-of-the-mill ad on a published site. So we've talked a lot about the business and the technology. How did you personally get interested in this? My mother cooked with me from an early age, so we were cooking a lot of Swiss Swiss recipes at the time. Um, so I think I've grown up with cooking. I still cook every day, pretty much, uh, when I'm not traveling. The other thing was, is I've always been interested in trying to solve problems um, and kind of build things to try and solve problems. So you know, from the age of 10, I've been building small sites and apps and websites and buying and selling stuff. So I think when I kind of started to have to do my own grocery shopping, essentially when I went to university, I sort of realized that this was something that was kind of frustrating and tedious and manual and this should be easier um, because if it was easier, it would give me all these benefits. And I uh, started playing around with the idea and with a friend of mine, we put together a some basic um, apps to, to do this, um, started testing it. And this is probably two or three years before we actually founded the company. And then over the years, got became more and more confident this actually could be something and we actually could make something useful um, and then decided to go full on with it and uh, quit the other stuff and uh, <laughs> build the business. What are some of the most surprising things you learned along this journey in founding this company and, and running Whisk? I think the main one is not to do with the food space, but just more without running a company is how difficult it is to actually build a business. I think um, when we're going back to the days of you know, at, at university, I thought it would be super easy to build. Well, not super easy, but I kind of thought it'd be relatively straightforward to build a business and make some money and grow it. And the reality is at every single stage of that growth sort of journey, 
there've been different challenges. And I think if you look at, think of a graph of emotions of how you're feeling in that journey from super excited to, um, you know, depressed, um, you've kind of got this, uh, you know, as you know, from founding, you think you've got really high moments of feeling, I know I'm going to build something absolutely amazing. It's awesome. And then the reality of, wow, I didn't, this is all going pear shaped and I should have just got a job or something. And then a customer signs up and you feel fantastic again. It's all going to be fine. And that kind of, it is a roller coaster of emotions. And I think as you, as you progress, the trend does go upwards. And, you know, I love what I do and I'm super happy that I stuck it out and I am here. But, it definitely is kind of a, an emotional uh, roller coaster, which I didn't expect at all. And at each stage of the journey, there are different challenges. So it's, you, you think you've kind of made it out of, you know, the first, well, you've got through the main stage and you think, yeah, I've done it, that's fine. We're now making money. We're now, yeah, we've been profitable for the last few years. So like we're profitable, money's no longer an issue. It's fine. And suddenly you hit the next stage, which is like, how do you scale that? And you're like, wow, it's really hard to hire good people and keep the culture running as you start to grow it. And then you grow a little bit more and then your market becomes interesting for lots of other people and competitors start right, arriving and they start copying your model and it's like it's fascinating and it i love that part of it i think it, i'd be bored if it wasn't like that but that it was definitely something that i didn't i didn't expect i expected it to be much much easier um, than it actually has been for me at least <laughs> so you recently joined samsung next as part of the product organization can you tell me a little bit about how you started the relationship with samsung and uh why you decided to join us so we started working with Samsung. The first first experience was launched in November 2016. At that point, it was essentially putting our app onto the fridge so that people could use the Whisk application there and they could, for example, save a recipe or create a shopping list on a publisher site or anywhere on the web and it would magically appear on my fridge, um, which I think is the first kind of experience. And that was in the UK only. Samsung then were building out that whole food experience with shopping lists, meal planners, recipe experiences, and came to us. And we then ended up powering a global rollout of their um, recipe application across eight countries. Um, we did a whole bunch of demos um, with them at CES and IFA and all the big kind of trade shows that exist. That was about a year and a half ago. And then through that kind of partnership with with samsung digital appliances team in korea we were introduced to samsung next and for us it was about the team that we have got to know over the last year or year and a half super talented with some of the best minds um in silicon valley working for that team and we we're like well actually learning from that team and being able to kind of have all those people also help us grow as well as of the additional resources that samsung brings with acquiring a team and adding on to that the scale of Samsung, the opportunity to basically to collaborate with a company like that. I think there is so much, we're so relevant to so many different places of Samsung, um, but really also the Samsung Next team and the resources, I think made it kind of a, a great opportunity for us as a team to take. So how will the future be different if WISC becomes widely adopted or more widely adopted, I should say? Yeah, I think the future from like a macro humanity point of view, we'll have less people eating seven to nine recipes on repeat, being bored with their food. I think there'll be less waste in, in the world. So we waste huge amounts of food every single month, year. It's, it's incredible how many tons of food are thrown away. So we'll waste less. We'll be eating healthier. 
which I think is incredibly important for individuals and for the world. Um, so I think that's kind of a few of the areas. There are, I think, in food, in such a complex and deep sort of space, which actually makes, I think, we're really lucky to be working in such an interesting space because it makes hiring so much easier because everyone's like, wow, yeah, I want to work for a food startup. Whereas maybe you know, a few years ago, the opposite would have been true of saying, hey, do you want to come and work in a bank or something? <laughs> so uh, if you weren't doing this, is there an area of tech or outside of tech that you would be interested in working in that you're excited about or bullish on? I'm actually pretty passionate about what I'm doing right now. So I think um, for, the t- for the time being, at least, that will be, uh, I-, I haven't got any other ideas. But what I would say in terms of areas outside of what I'm doing that I think are, I'm, I'm really impressed with and, and excited about, I think digital banking is coming a long way. I think banks are really archaic in how things are being done. And the experience as a user through the traditional bank is, 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 is really painful a lot of the time and as a business as well. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. I'm also excited about the impact that the startups are having on the traditional banks because I think what will happen next is they will, or is that already happening? Is that the big banks are waking up to this and at the moment it feels like they're playing catch up or, and, and this stuff doesn't feel like, um, a genuine experience. I, I really think is, is competing against the big startups that are doing this, but these banks have so many resources and they will, I'm confident they will wake up and they will build good experiences. And I think that from a user's perspective, that's super exciting because as in from a, from a digital tech banking startup, maybe that's a, not kind of something I really want to think about too much. But from a user perspective, that's exciting because I'm going to be getting better experiences that know me better, provide me services that are much easier to use. I as a user will not have to waste as much time in banks and all these different things. So and banking is just one example. I think most of these old institutions that we use will be quickly disrupted by technology. And I think that's a great, that's great for any user. So final question. You mentioned that you cook a lot practically every day. What's your go-to recipe or what's your favorite food? And if they're not the yeah. same, what are they? <laughs> um, they are the same. I, the things that I like are the, also things that I cook or at least attempt to cook. I have to say part of that is Swiss food, just because I think everyone likes the food they grew up with, with their you know, mother or grandmother or whatever cooking for them. Typically, I, I love cooking Swiss food. I would say I love Japanese food. A lot of the Southeast Asian countries, I think, have some amazing food. I love Indian food. Um, it's often vegetarian. It's healthy. You feel great after you've eaten it. Not terrible with some of the other food that I like. Um, so I think I, I wouldn't say I like one exactly like particular food all the time. I actually like I like variety, which actually maybe in a funny way is kind of comes back down to that seven to nine recipes on repeat thing. Um, I like eating different types of food. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to What's Next. We release a new episode every other week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email to podcast at samsungnext.com. Until next time. <laughs>